This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to Everyday Theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or why to believe it, but rather explore our Christian beliefs and why they matter for us in relation to God, to creation, and to others. My name is Aaron Ross. Welcome back to Everyday Theology. Uh, Chris, we've got a problem. And we didn't, I didn't even preface you that we had this problem. You and I have a problem, like the two of us? No, no, no. As in oh. you and I together. Oh, we share a problem. For, okay, I yeah, feel much better. Share a problem for everyone else. I thought we in were the, about to have a confrontation of some kind. <laughs> that would be really funny if I started out like this. <laughs> Chris, we just talked for 15 minutes, but now that I've hit record, I've got a problem. Uh, no, no. Um, actually, our problem is at the last podcast, I even said kind of, yeah, we'll do another podcast before Christmas. And then you and I, we didn't, mm. I, we just didn't. I, we, no. we got busy. It was Christmas season. It happens, right? It but while we lied to, and I'll take the full blame, I lied to everyone. It's not really a lie because we're going to claim Orthodox Christmas. Oh, I like it. Yes, absolutely. Right? Which Definitely. is, we'll be coming out, we'll be the day after this comes out. So it'll be January 7th. In the spirit of Orthodox Christmas, especially in the fact that you and I, as we were discussing beforehand, don't really know a lot of the history of Orthodox Christmas. We know it's a different calendar. You know, we are mm-hmm. products of our non-Eastern Orthodox yeah. realities. I'm sure both of us have read Eastern Orthodox, you know, theologians. We just haven't looked into the calendar or gone through the history, right? Yeah, and so, if I don't know much about it at all. I know that it's, well, I say I know, I have the impression that it's an old difference, right? That this is not right. something that, you know, emerged in our lifetimes. It's, it's right. one that, that runs deep. But I don't, I don't actually know, like, where the, why the difference. And, and I, again, I assume, and this may be wrong, I assume that the West made a change, not the East. So that some folks on this side of the divide decided we need a different calendar. <laughs> we just like to be different and then say that but, they're wrong. Right. But yeah. I don't I actually don't know. I should know, but I don't know. Um, but in that same spirit, we're still going to talk about Christmas, right? Like it's, it's past. Yeah. We've gone through the Christmas season, which is one of the main differences we have to talk about anyways. But, um, but I think that now that kind of the hustle is over, it's, it's actually kind of hard to talk about Christmas leading up to Christmas, mainly because of everything that we're kind of going to talk about, right? <laughs> right. Uh, the amount of Christmas parties, Christmas gifts, Christmas wrapping, Christmas cooking, Christmas yeah. planning, everything that happens, it's really hard to talk about Christmas, maybe other than the hour or hour and a half that you might sit at church and hear a Christmas sermon, mm. right? So... I'm going to just kind of throw it your way because this was kind of the topic you kind of came up with. Yeah. What is your, and this may not be the right word, but whatever, what's your gripe with Christmas 
And what do we need to do now at the beginning of 2022 to think about Christmas 2022? Oh, yeah. That's a, yeah. Thanks for the question. I, I, I don't think it's so much a gripe, although, again, I know you said Not you, the right you're word. using the word lightly, right? Yeah. I, 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 as I told you before we started recording, Clive, my middle son, several years ago when we were living in Tennessee, he says to my wife and me, why would God have Jesus born on Christmas? Like, it seems like the worst time of year to like send his son. Like people are, are concerned about everything else. And it was like truly revelatory moment, right? Like for him and for me that we, his experience of Christmas is it's, it just happens to overlap with Jesus coming, right. but it has nothing to do with it really. Right. Which you know, amidst all the happy birthday, Jesus songs, you know, right. Still exactly. Yeah. Overlap, right. Absolutely. So he recognizes somehow that this is Jesus birthday, but not that that's what we're celebrating. Right. And I, I mean, it's not for me a gripe because I mean, I love Christmas season. I love the cold weather. Although this year it wasn't cold No, <laughs> where I was anyway, it is now, but it wasn't, when Christmas day came, I love the weather. I love the joy of gift giving. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's not a holiday that I have any kind of complaint about. Right. But I think, you know, as Christians, we, we have to be pretty sober about the fact that this holiday has in some, you know, so the, the churches I grew up in, there were folks who didn't believe we should have Christmas trees and they were repeating the nonsense about how Christmas was originally a pagan festival. Right. And right. We, and, and then those same people, of course, were upset that we, that Christ was being taken out of Christmas, you know, <laughs> Starbucks is right. Not, we're not allowed not to even talk Christmas. about the song. Oh, Christmas tree. That was like anathema in my house. Right. Or if you, exactly. And if right. you like wrote Christmas as Xmas, like these oh, are gosh. all like, yeah. but the, but the truth of the matter is, you know, we, my gripe is the ways in which we've preached and sung about Christmas in our churches. That's where the real damage is, right? The problem is not out there. The problem is not people are having too much fun and they're taking their eyes off of the the truth of Jesus. The point is we're not talking about the story and haven't for a long time talked about the story in a way that's true to scripture and true to the spirit of Christ. And it, it is a, a place where we've had really poor discipleship surprise surprise right like we've we've done a really poor job of shaping people in the wonder of this story and it it's sentimentalized i think for all of us or much, many of us in 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 all the wrong ways and if we get upset about it being commercialized which is a real problem i mean again i don't want to downplay that but it's not that commercialization has somehow obscured the truth we're sharing. It's that we're not sharing the truth and the holiday is being commercialized in ways that, that make what we are saying seem irrelevant. In light of commercialization, I guess I just have to say I had the wrong mic selected. So it's probably going to sound different now, but we got the right one going now. Okay. 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 It's all about the commercial uh, appeal of the podcast. Production quality has to be high. No one's going to listen to us if it's not. No one's going to listen to us anyways, but it's, it, it's a thing, right? <laughs> no. So I think let's start kind of with that. You, you make this claim, right? It's just not taught correctly yeah. in church. And 
of course, there are ways in which I've seen people try to talk about certain things. Like, let's talk about Jesus being of low class. Let's talk about him being mm. um, yeah. a, a refugee. Let's talk about actual the story, these events surrounding uh, the life, the birth of Christ and then his early life. Yes, let's do that. But where do you say there is a failure to communicate the story of, of the birth of Jesus and the Christmas season in the church? Yeah. So let me talk about it. I'm going to go from a few different angles and you can just redirect me as whichever is most interesting to you or whichever you think I need to explain. Commercially will be most interesting <laughs> yeah, to our audience. Right, exactly. <laughs> Please make those decisions. <laughs> uh, I, I think one is one of our problems is we don't actually know the story well. And we don't know the biblical texts well. Hmm. So it's it's one of those cases where it's another case in which a, a lot of our churches, and here I'm, I'm talking specifically about like free church, evangelical churches, where for generations, a hundred years or more, we've assumed that the basics take care of themselves, right? We don't actually right. have to teach people the Lord's Prayer or the Ten Commandments or the Fruit of the Spirit or the basic outline of the story of the Exodus and the story of Christmas. Like, they'll get that, right? We can focus on what really matters, like confessions of prosperity, speaking in tongues, healing, whatever. Like we focus on some particular, right? whatever our church is known for, right? And and we kind of leave basic Christian catechesis to figure itself out, right? Like that'll happen at home or that'll happen at school or it, it's just in the ether. And we've been doing that for a hundred years, essentially. And we're reaping the harvest of that, which right. is nobody, nobody knows much of anything about our faith in our churches. And the more central and important the belief is, the less we know about it. <laughs> like, can, can I, can I maybe give a postulation on why? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, I think this is of course a bunch of things that are coming together, but maybe one of the biggest reasons why we don't know the story is because when we look at the person of Christ, there's really only one thing that matters, mm. right? Like growing up in my Pentecostal slash evangelical, right? Cause it's kind of maybe in my early childhood, uh, yeah. it was definitely yeah. much more Pentecostal and then things normalized in the mid two thousands. And now it's just like evangelical with maybe some spirit sprinkled in. Right. Mm. And even in those situations, the most I heard about Christ as a kid was he died for your sins. Right. Yeah. So this story of the incarnation of Christmas was simply just to get us to the point where Jesus died. Right. Like that, that has little to do with other than he just had to do it. That's right. And then, but now the main point is he died for you. Right. right. Yes. He, and he, I, yeah. Right. His whole, his life is just the necessary precursor to what really matters, right? Which is, which right. is death. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot to be said along these lines in terms of what in let's let's focus on the Pentecostal tradition. And then I think this shades over more broadly into evangelicalism too. But Pentecostals, the only things they care about about Jesus' life are the miracles. Hmm. <laughs> yep. No, not, I see that. The, yeah, yeah. Not the teachings, right? So right. the way Jesus lived, the, the way he taught people to live couldn't matter less really to us. The fact that he performed miracles matters a lot. And the fact that he he died for our sins. But here's here's where there's this especially kind of, the healings too, right? Like those oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. particularly, right? 
Yeah, healings uh, amongst the miracles, healings are the ones that matter most. I think that's right. But I think there's an oddity there in that we think of Jesus' death as him doing something we don't have to do. In other words, we don't want to talk about death in our churches at all. Hmm. We do want to talk about power to perform miracles. Hmm. So oddly, we the emphasis on Jesus' death is about him doing something we could never do, him doing something we don't have to do. Right. But the emphasis on Jesus' miracles is on him doing something we absolutely can do. We, we should be performing all the miracles he performed. Right. And experiencing the same, quote unquote, success, which should tell us right away we've got we've got a, like a fundamental problem in that we see his death, the cross, as something that really it was done for us. It's not something we're going to have to live. Right. Right. And and yet we do get to kind of leverage the power of, of his life. And of course, no one believes that once you say it that way out loud. Like no exactly. one's going to stand by that once I've said it that way. But I, I think if you pay attention to the way that we talk and pay attention to what we do not say, as well as to what we say, it's pretty clear that, that that's what's happening in our churches and has been for yeah. a long time happening. Yeah, I think that that point can't be overstated. And I, and I mean that in the sense of one of the struggles with doing theology, having taught theology, still teaching theology at university levels, you know this too, right? That anytime we teach something or we critique something about the church, the church is doing X, Y, or Z. Those who are part of that church always go, well, no, that's not what we believe or teach or say. Yeah. But it's only because the critique has then been made that they go, no, 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 that's not what I'm doing. But what we have to do is we have to actually look at the body of work, right? Like look at the songs being sung. I mean, the biggest instance of this is Hillsong music because there isn't even a full dissertation written about how Hillsong, the non-united Hillsong, the, the older generation Hillsong, like the, the, the amount of times the Holy spirit was discussed dramatically dropped throughout the life of Hillsong's written work. And it was all kind of Jesus was bolstered and even, even got a little bit declined, but it was more kind of like in that realm, right? God, the father and the son and the spirit is talked about less. Now we can say clearly, well, something's happening with their theological robustness that the spirit mm-hmm. is now starting to kind of be, you know, not talked about, not listened to, not heard, not discussed, not understood. But I, I know the church would be like, well, that's not true. We love the yeah, spirit. Absolutely. Right. Well, absolutely. all we have to do is go off your teaching. So I just wanted to kind of like state that again, because I think oh, that's yeah. a really important point that a lot of people struggle with when it comes to the critiquing of the church or the critiquing of teaching. Or when we talk about something like this, sure, someone may not state specifically that they are relegating, that they're only caring about the miracles and not the teachings. Mm hmm. But when we see the messages, what's relied upon, what is highlighted, then we can make that critique, right? That's right. And, and it's, it's part of this larger problem of we've assumed that the basics take care of themselves, right, about Jesus' mm-hmm. life, right? Yeah. The, and, and, and most of the stuff we think we know about Jesus and most of the stuff we think other, people's, other people know about Jesus is mistaken, right? So they just we have all of these assumptions about well, we know that Jesus had three years of ministry, but when you actually read the Gospels, it's not quite clear. Right? <laughs> no, Matthew, uh, Mark, and Luke, it's definitely not three years, right? And 
in John, it may be more than three years. Right. So it's, it's for, for those who don't understand this, right. It's all based on the discussion of Passovers and how many Passovers mm-hmm. we think Jesus went to. Right. But right. that's just how many were discussed. Right. So that it's a, you know, everybody thinks they know, you know, Jesus 30 years in silence, three years of ministry He dies when he's 33 years old. And that's not harmful that we don't know that necessarily, but it just shows how sloppy we are about those kinds of details. Or like in our nativity plays, when we have the shepherds and the magi all showing up while Jesus is still in the cradle, like it all happened at once in a cave because there was no room for them in the inn. I mean, because the innkeeper wouldn't allow them in all of all of those details are wrong, right? Like that they're right. not, they're not turned out and forced to find a cave. They're, they're given shelter in side one of Joseph's family's member, family members house where the other animals are being kept in the, in, in the house with them. There, there's no innkeeper turning them away. There is no room for them, but not because somebody's being cruel, but because like they've been forced to show up in this town that's overmatched by all the people right. from here and register for taxes. So like that detail, again, in some sense, making room in the end was the best that they could do. Right. It was still the hospitality. Yeah. There, there's a, there's a deep act of hospitality there actually. Right. In the story, right. That they're there. They find a place for them. Right. It's not yeah. a case where Joseph and Mary are, you know, in an alleyway giving birth with no one around to care about them. But there, there are other people there. Right. It's and there just, could be, assumption that animals were displaced in order to make that happen. Right. Absolutely. For sure. Or at least that, that, that part of the house where the animals are kept in, in, in times like these, that there's, there's, there are more bodies there than usual. Right. Right. So there's that detail. And of course the, the, the detail about the Magi don't come for a couple of years when they do come, they're coming to a different place to a house where Mary is I mean, so they're like little details like that, that on their own, I mean, we don't want to be pedantic about it, but we should know our story. Right. <laughs> right. And, and our not knowing of the details of the story is a reflection of how poorly we understand the theology of what's being mm. said. So back to what we were discussing a moment ago about we, in, in our circles, we tend to want the miracles from Jesus life and, and then his death to be unique. He dies. So I don't have to. He dies so I can have the power he performed in his life. What that does is it it tends to make us read back into Christmas, Jesus coming to live that kind of life. Right? Yeah. One of one I have this incredible story. So I have a friend, um, Chris Brewer. Do you know Chris? I know the name. Yeah. Yeah. So Chris, uh, this I don't remember. Maybe last year. I, I in in pandemic, in the pandemic time runs together for me. So I don't know when this was, but he, his grandfather with whom he's very close, his grandfather had a birthday. I think it was, and they gave him a pre, you know, a party and a present for his birthday. And at the end of the party, Chris's grandfather is talking to Chris and Katie, Chris's wife. And he's like, got tears in his eyes, such a sweet moment. And this man is really sweet and generous. I love this man too. And he's like, Oh, Chris and Katie, like, this is, this is so, so wonderful. I'm, I'm the luckiest man who ever lived mm-hmm. except for Jesus, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and like, what I love about that, like, I love the story about Clive and why would God have Jesus born on Christmas is 
I think we do think that about Jesus, that he yeah. had a kind of charmed life, right? Like he, right. he's like born on this silent night, holy night, and there are angels singing, and he gets visits from shepherds who are just overawed. And then magi come rushing in with gold and frankincense and myrrh and all of the warm feelings we have when our kids are performing the nativity play at church, we kind of map that onto Jesus. And then all we're talking about really is the, the miracles he performs from that point. And then he goes and does this saving act of dying on the cross for us. Right. But of course there's not a, there's nothing about Jesus life. That's lucky. Jesus was was decidedly unlucky at yeah. birth, right, and all the way through his life to death. Right. Right? Like there, there's there's nothing about Jesus' life that's charmed. No, and we, I, that that kind of sentiment. So we've got at least two layers there. One is the layer of we've sentimentalized Jesus' story, right? We've turned it into something cute, mm-hmm. and then. By the way, this is why when we shift to talking about his death, we tend to shift from a kind of cute um, hallmark portrayal of Jesus to the Mel Gibson passion where right. his death is exaggeratedly bloody and violent. Right. So, and that's a way of marking off the way we imagine his life as something we want for ourselves as lucky, as blessed, as charmed, as rich and fulfilling and his death is something we don't have to be part of. Right. Right. So I, I think the way we represent it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's, that's telling, right. The way we, we tell his life story versus the way we tell his the story of his death. And interestingly enough, I think even in his death, we also don't know the story, not at least within what we would want to call the factuals. Yeah. Because yeah. again, it's not really what happens that matters as much as what you're saying I don't have to do it. And now I'm good to go Yeah, because I think of things like, you know, one of my favorite kind of maybe grenades to lob towards my students and in, in our kind of theology or hermeneutics courses was to say, well, how many days was Jesus dead? And everyone, well, just three, right? but no, right. Friday night, yeah. Saturday night, Sunday morning, that's a day and a half, right? Like that's maybe three, there are three days in which he was, but according to Jewish yeah. tradition, it wouldn't even have been three, yeah. right? It would have been, yeah. He's raised on the third day, right? Yeah, a day and a half, right? Like, we don't even care about those things because the story has already been crafted for us in a way that's easy, neat, tidy, and I can just hold on to it. It's not messy, right? So, in that, well, and yeah. So let me let me add one more. I mean, there's a lot more to say here, but one more detail is that I think is telling, and I'm responding to something you said earlier about. When we talk about Jesus' birth in these ways, we often, so theologically, we, we tend to, to talk about it as God becoming human in some humiliating way, right? So God has this yeah. unbelievable, so Jesus, before he's Jesus, the word pre-existing, has this astounding life at the, at the height of privilege, right? And he gives all that up for a little while in order to go and die this death eventually that's going to save us. Right. But that's not what Christians believe, right. At all. Like God's life is not privileged and becoming human is not a humiliation for God. Right. And the incarnation is a revel. I mean, the, the entire faith depends upon the incarnation being a revelation for God. Yeah. And if it's a revelation for God, then it has to tell the truth about who God is in himself. It can't be simply, it can't be some kind of secret mission in which Jesus is finding some way, 
some legal loophole in heavenly law to save us from the devil and damnation. Yeah. Like, it has to be that his human life is somehow fitting for God and therefore revelatory for God. Yeah. And I we think, don't we don't even know that. I think that's why Gorman, Michael Gorman, who's been on the podcast before, if you haven't heard it, you can go back and listen to that one. But something he says fundamentally changes this for the church, although I don't know how much the church has yet picked up on it. And hopefully it happens, right? In his understanding of this kind of odd Greek word kenosis in Philippians yeah, chapter yeah, two. Yeah where it's this kind of passage about, you know, Jesus self-emptying, giving up of himself, right? Yep. How we all take that, exactly what you're saying, as humiliation, right? God who could do everything, know everything, you know, be everywhere, be all-powerful, all of the kind of omni-words about God. Um, gave up that stuff, humiliated so that he could become like us, and then we should do the same thing, rather than the way that Gorman likes uh, Gorman kind of notes what this word really should mean is that actually that is God in God's self. So yeah. by doing this, God isn't humiliating or giving up of himself. He's revealing exactly who he's always been. Absolutely. Which fundamentally changes the way that we understand the nature of God, That's who right. God so, is and what God yeah. means for us. Right. One way to just, you know, cut to it for me is if you just imagine two glasses, one of them full of water and one of them empty, when we talk about kenosis or emptying, we tend to think of it this way. You pour the water out of this, out of glass one into glass two, and now glass one is empty. Right. So when we talk about, you know, he emptied himself, we tend to think he was God. He gave up all of those privileges. Right. To live a human life. When I think the point Paul is making is more like the, the act of pouring the water into the cup the emptying into, the pouring mm. into. Yeah. God is filling up humanity with his own life. Like who God is in himself is now embodied in this man, Jesus, who's Mary's son. Right. And that now has been shared with us, right? That fullness, God's yeah. emptying out of his fullness into this life has now filled that life up. And now we share, we share in that filling up, right? right? We, we are baptized in it. So I think that, and all, that makes all the difference, right? Theologically, like you, you can't exaggerate how different those those things are. Right. So I, it's I, this to circle back on your use of the word gripe earlier. You know, it's not just about being grumpy theology professors because our pedantic. <laughs> That's too easy to do, are, anyways. Right. Exactly. We'll do. We. You know, there are other podcasts for that. Like, <laughs> this is this is the heart of our faith, right? But this is the, the living center, the core of what it means to be people who adore the God Jesus is and reveals. Mm -hmm. And we don't know it. We yeah. don't know it. And we're not moved by it in the way that it's meant to move us. Right. right. So it's not to say that we don't find our nativity plays cute, but the story of Jesus youth is, is a story that is deep in beauty. I mean, certainly you have the angelic hosts, you have the the wonder of the Magi following the star, but it's also steeped in blood. I mean, that yeah. Jesus, as a probably two years old or so, as a as a boy, as a toddler, is in a world uh, where Herod is slaughtering anyone who might challenge his throne. Right, and Jesus, you know, details like Jesus. At, as a little boy, 
being forced to flee to Egypt so he isn't killed. Yeah. And then when he comes back from Egypt, not able to go home, not able to go back to his family home, he has to live in Nazareth, become a Nazarene because it's not safe to be so close to Jerusalem, even then, mm. even after he comes back. Right. right. So that Jesus grows up in a house. And at some point in there, his father, his father figure, Joseph dies. We don't even know when that happens, but right. that Jesus childhood is vital, right? Vital, not because of the death he's going to die later, but because already, right, from conception, he is God in the flesh. That life matters for us, but it's a life that isn't, it isn't charmed. It isn't lucky, right? I mean, he's born in, in, into a world of disruption, already kind of being forced to move with his family. I mean, he's, he's born on the road, essentially, yeah. in, in a borrowed spot, as he'll be buried in a borrowed tomb at the end. He's poor. He's born to poor parents. He's born to poor parents under the cloud of scandal. He's He lives a life that's touched by Roman force and the threat of Herod. And even when he becomes a man and announces his ministry, he's he's not met, right? With he, In the language of John, he comes to his own, his own do not receive him. Right. That Jesus, his, especially in the Gospel of John, I mean, Jesus' family his own his own kin right think he's crazy they think he's beside himself right and when he dies he dies almost entirely alone and this is why herbert mccabe and and others have said and i think this is right there's a very real sense in which jesus life is deemed to be a failure hmm. like everybody around jesus would have thought not everybody but uh, most people around jesus would have thought well anyone who would have thought him as messiah would definitely think hundred percent. We see that for sure. Like in Luke 24, when Jesus encounters the Emmaus disciples on their way home, he, you know, he's, why are you downcast? And they're like, have you not heard everyone in Jerusalem is talking about this man, Jesus, who we thought was the Messiah. Yeah. Right. But he was crucified and they have heard that the tomb is empty, but they, that doesn't mean anything to them. No. Right. And, the, the fact that he's been killed means that he, he could not have been Messiah. Now, they say he was a prophet, and we thought he was the Messiah. Yeah, which is such so a they, unique passage that most people just gloss right over, yeah, right? absolutely, right? So it's clear that the people, his followers at least, many of them, they love Jesus to the end. They, they wanted him to be something he was not, though. Right. And in Acts, we pick that right back up, right? So after he resurrects, we get that scene in Acts 1 where the disciples say to him, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? <laughs> right? It's like they're, they're coming back to their expectations of him, which he disappointed, right? right? That he, yeah. he did not do what they thought he was going to do. And he dies almost alone. I mean, one detail about the death that's striking to me that I think matches the beginning in, in terms of the way the gospel actually tell the gospels actually tell the story is that, you know, like in Mark's gospel, for example, as you know, right from the very beginning of Jesus ministry, he's confronting the demonic, right? You, he's got, he's meeting with, you know, in the synagogue in Mark, right at the very beginning, the demons start to cry out against him. Yeah, He's casting demons out. And so there's this conflict with the devil. And of course the, the wilderness temptation is an example of that and so on. But in the Gospels, the closer we get to his death, the less there's talk about devils. Hmm. And in the end, it's not the devil that kills Jesus. Right. 
Right. It, it, these are not demons that are ravaging him. Unlike the Mel Gibson Passion of the Christ again. Precisely. Right? This is one of the reasons Mel Gibson's passion is so dis, so misleading. Is is it it portrays it as if this is a demonic attack. This is right. this is the devil's work. But the gospels tell it like no, it's very much human beings preserving their own interests, mm-hmm. afraid of what they're going to lose, unsure about what's right, and Jesus falling into their hands, right? That he is, and, and you know, Peter will say this, like, you killed this man, not the devil, right? Not, not the demons. You killed this man. Yeah. And that, of course, that you includes you and me, but still we can't run from, that's the way Jesus' life ends. And his life begins in the same kind of difficulty, right? The same kind of challenge. And all of his life is his life is lived in that place. And our our tellings of his story are false to the text of scripture. And they're also sentimentalized and what's the right word for? Um they're pulpy, right? Like that Mel Gibson's passion, I think, is a great example of this, in which it's it's overdone on purpose, right? Oh yeah. In ways that are false, that that leave us with a, a certain kind of feeling, but they're false to the text, they're false to the tradition, they're false to the spirit of Jesus. And that's what we should be worried about, right? As as serious an issue as commercialization is, or whatever, the concern about people taking Christ out of Christmas, if I could put it this bluntly, if anyone's still listening, they might take offense at this. <laughs> I mean, the, the fact is, the Christ we had in Christmas wasn't Christ anyway. Right? Yeah. Like, like the, the Christ we've been telling mm-hmm. people about, by mm-hmm. and large, like that's, and of course, I'm talking hugely broad strokes here, but the Christ we've been talking about, preaching about, singing about around Christmas for the last few generations has very little bearing on the Jesus of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. And two points I want to make to what you're saying, and then one I want to kind of, or like one of them I just kind of want to throw out there, and the other one that I want to discuss. The one I want to throw out there is, what you just did is the perfect reality, the perfect example of what happens when we talk about the story of the birth of Jesus better is that it leads us to talk about the whole of Jesus life better. Yes. Right. Like, like when we get that story, right. Then all of a sudden we start pondering on the other stories and try to understand them more deeply and fully as the story is, not as our representations of them are. That's right. And it was kind of seamless for you to go from a Christmas narrative, right? The things surrounding the Christmas season towards the death of Christ and even those kind of things. But it wasn't strained, right? It was very much this story leads to this story, which leads to this story, which leads to this story. And we can't get that last story. Well, and and just to say why, it's because the gospels recognize Jesus' life is a seamless garment, right? right? That, That he's born in a particular way that's true to who he is. And he is, even in that moment, nursing at Mary's breast, he's already the fullness of Godhead bodily. And he's already living his mission, right? From from that beginning. And he lives it in ways that anticipate what will happen in the end, right? So we get, right, Herod is against him from the word go. Yeah. We know how it's going to end, right? That, that right. Not the same Herod, but the, that same ruling force that is against Jesus. Jesus is a threat right. from the beginning. He's a threat in the end. And those forces that try to kill him when he's a babe do kill him when he's a man. Yeah. And the, the ways in which Jesus 
depends upon the hospitality of others at his birth. He depends upon throughout his life, right? Mm -hmm. Boxes have holes, birds have nests. I have nowhere to lay my head, right? Right. When he sends his disciples out, like you, you've got to put yourself at the mercy of people who welcome you into their house. And, and that's and, the second point that I want to talk about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The second point was this idea, this understanding, recognition of Jesus' poverty, of Jesus mm-hmm. not having much, yeah. and why it's so hard for people to accept that point, right? Because if you, you know, if you've been around the church much, and if you've especially been around the prosperity gospel stuff much, there is always going to be a reason why Jesus had a lot, right? Yeah. I think a lot of people, especially, even talk about the narratives, right? When Jesus, when that, when the Magi, when the wise men finally do get to Jesus, and they bring these gifts. They're like, well, Jesus may have been poor beforehand, but he just got given a bunch of good gifts and now he's rich, right? So he's good. He's set, right? (laughs) Right. Or we we talk about like, yes, there were people who funded Jesus' ministry, but just because they funded his ministry doesn't mean that he had any money really to do his ministry like we think about the church today, which is, you know, I think about the, the, the miracle of the fish and the loaves, right? None of the apostles had any money to buy anyone food. It's not right. like they were flush with cash and going, yeah, sure. We'll just go buy food for everyone. It's no big deal. We've got funders, right? But I think it's so hard for people to accept, especially those within prosperity kind of veins of the gospel, or even just those that just choose to believe or just don't want to believe that Jesus was not wealthy, Because again, what you said in that divide of Jesus lived a charmed life. Yeah. He's and that's the life that I can have. Mm -hmm. And I don't have to deal with the death. When in reality, if we again we knew the story of Jesus, even in his own monetary situation, right? His Mm -hmm. socioeconomic class, we would have to start living differently to understand the story of Christ if we understood it. Right. No, absolutely. But people yeah. just don't want it. And, and that's the, that's where the conflict comes in. What we want with our Christianity versus what following Christ demands of us. That's right. And we've had we've had voices tell us over and over and over again. You know, Gandhi has a famous example of this, that this difference between the Christ of American Christianity and the Jesus of the Gospels. Right. The that I think even our own evangelists and missionaries have our own prophets have tried to turn our attention back to the difference between, you know, so I'm thinking, you know, of freed slaves and those who are speaking up on behalf of blacks in America again and again, return to this point, right? That there's a kind of Christianity in America, a way of talking about Jesus that has very little to do with the gospels, but underwrites the way of life we want for ourselves. Yeah. Right? So Jesus becomes a, a, a face. We, we made Jesus in our own image. And then we use that image we've made, that idol we've made, called it Jesus, and then sanctioned the kind of life we want, whether that, whether that life is, uh, you know, so what's interesting is I, I lived in such different communities. I had the blessing slash curse of being raised in like an old school, classical Pentecostal. Mm-hmm. Amen. Which was mostly poor people. Yeah. At the very most kind of lower middle class working types. Right. And they took pride 
in in that working class identity, and they took pride in being small. So, right? so when in the churches I grew up in, the most influential churches were small, hmm. and the idea was they're small because they're true, right? They're they're staying true to holiness. They're trained staying true to the spirit, and they're not like these TV preachers, not like prosperity right. preachers, who have compromised. That's the word they would use with the world in order to be successful, right? So until I went to Bible school, that's all I knew was a Pentecostalism that was shaped by working class mentality and a, a, not poverty. I mean, that's the wrong word, but poor in relation to what we were seeing on television, right? right. Even though we weren't allowed to have a television, right? Like that, that, that sense of that, that sense of being dissidents, right? We're, we're marginal people. That's the way we understood ourselves. Other Christians don't respect us. The world hates us. Right. Our churches are small because we're faithful. And then I went to Bible school and started running into all of these kids who were aspiring to be mega church pastors. And I had it, it all was shocking to me, right, to realize that people actually thought that was the way. But what, what that experience gave me is it allowed me to see how artificial it all is, mm-hmm. right? That the, the churches I grew up in, they, they did talk about Jesus being poor. But they talked about Jesus being poor in the way that middle-class white Americans are poor, right? Like yeah. he, he was a, you know, my dad would joke about this, right? The way that Jesus, we talk about, you know, wears Wranglers and cowboy boots and drives a Ford truck with a rifle right. And, right. You know, behind him on the window. Like we've made Jesus in our working class image. And yeah. then, and then when I went to Bible school and bumped into another class of life, college educated, you know, upwardly mobile people, they're talking about Jesus made uh, shockingly in their image. Right. And then right. when I started PhD work or master's work and started reading scholars writing about Jesus, shockingly, they made Jesus into their image. Right. Like, right. It, it, that's the temptation over and over again. And we can make Jesus up, make him look like we want him to look and then start to talk about the kind of life that he guarantees as possible. Right. And I think the, the call of, genuine faithfulness is we don't get to make up who Jesus is, right? Like, like yeah. we have to answer to what the texts actually say and what the tradition that's been handed on to us actually says. So and it's, it's wildly different from what we know to be normal. In, in order to do that, right? Like we are 300 and however many days away from the next Christmas. And then most importantly, the Christmas season, right? As it is a season, not a day. Right. Which we're still living right until Epiphany. Right. So what do we do to change? Right. Because, yes, right. We all idolize Jesus, which is a weird thing to say to make Jesus into an idol, which is to fashion him into something and then live our lives according to it. I, I, I think I would qualify that. We don't idolize Jesus. We make a Jesus that we idolize. Yeah. In other words, yeah, yeah. Like yeah you make an image up of a kind of lucky life. Right that has like tangential relationship to the Jesus of the gospels and the Jesus of the church. That's, I think that's that's what I meant by by idolized, right? Like creating an idol of of, an image of Jesus. Right. So we do this, we all have to, all of us, right? Like you and I included, and and I know you would agree, we have to continually find the way in which we've created 
an idled version of Jesus, right? In our image and tear that down, right? I mean, it's a continual process. Tillich talks about it as, you know, the kind of prophetic life, right? Of with one hand creating clarity and the other hand creating ambiguity, right? Yeah. Now, what are we going to do, right? Like, so how do we leading up to 300 and something days from now actually kind of re-engage the story in a way that helps tear down that idol, particularly as it relates to the Christmas season. Yeah. First and foremost, I think in prayer, we make that our cry. Like God show me as you are, not as I imagine you to be right. Like the, in, in that famous line and for some people infamous line in Meister Eckhart, like God save me from God, like God, as you are, save me from God as you, as I imagine you to be. Yeah. And you know, it's the, this is, we need to let God pick a hammer to the idols we've made. Right. It, that, that is, that's where it all begins. I think that prayer, and then in the spirit of that prayer, I think we turn to the scriptures and we read for what's on the page and assuming we know nothing. Hmm. Yeah. Just, just go back and read and don't, don't read in globs. Like, Give your attention to Matthew and ask, how does Matthew tell the story? And then ask, yeah. how does Mark tell the story? And then ask, how does Luke tell the story? And so on. And Paul and, you know, et cetera, down the line. Read the text again and don't, don't assume some kind of mashed up version that you think you know is right. right. Because the version of Jesus that most of us have is a kind of mashed up version of pieces from the Gospels that have been stripped down or reframed in certain ways, like the three and a half years of ministry stuff. Right. Like that's, that's a mashup of, of the texts into something that is a coherent. Particularly trying to take away any contradictions, right? Let's yeah, make it really dumb down so we can make sure that it all fits. Right. That's right. And, and as long as your ambition is to keep everything neat, you you don't have, there, there's no truthfulness to that. Right. right. If, if, if your only goal is, how do I keep everything in order and under my control? Well, then you're not a disciple. You're not a student. Right. You're, not, you're not, you're not learning the truth. So I, I think read, like pay attention. The third thing is read what other Christians and other times have said about those texts. Yes. Like yeah. read, read the sermons, you know, like I've, I've been working a lot with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, read Dietrich Bonhoeffer on Christmas, read, you know, the sermons of Gregory, the theologian, or Meister Eckhart, I just mentioned, whatever, right? Find Christians who yeah. talked about Christmas, and they weren't middle-class white Americans, and and pay attention to what they say about what the texts say. And I, that, I think that will, that will go a long way. And maybe beware. And this is mm. something I learned, especially in the circles that you and I were in together for some time of pastors who would don our doors and say things like, I just preach Jesus. I just read the Bible. Yeah. Right. Like I just like, as, as if like, this was like a simple thing that there is no complexity to, or there's no depth. That, no, I just, I just teach Jesus. I don't need to worry about that. I just read the Bible. I don't need to hear what, what, you know, anyone said about Jesus because I've got everything I need in the Bible. Right. That's right. That, and kind well, of and, a dumbing down and, of, of yeah. Christianity. It's it, the weird thing is here that 
and this goes back to what we discussed a while back in this conversation about assumptions about the basics taking care of themselves. We, I've learned over time that the more people talk about how Bible centered they are, the less they actually read it. <laughs> like, they're at, like all of that talk about how important the Bible is and how it's the only thing they care about. It's almost always a giveaway that they're not interested in actually reading what the text says. Yeah. And, and I want to throw something in there. It doesn't necessarily mean that they haven't read it. Right. Like, oh, sure, like those sure, same sure. people might have actually and legitimately read the Bible three times this year. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean that they're reading the Bible. And I think That's there's right. a big distinction, right? Absolutely. Completely like, agree. That's right. Yeah, in fact, I actually kind of hate the whole read the Bible in a year thing, mainly because it puts you on a pace just to say, I've just accomplished this thing. Mm-hmm. And by nature and virtue of reading it, I'm going to get it. Yeah. No, you know I what I mean? Right. Yeah. I, it's, it's a uh, man. Yeah. There's so much here I, I, I would want to say, but I think what I was going to add a moment ago, not just read what other Christians in other times and places have said, but pay attention to what Christians are saying now, Christians in circles, not your own. So like, I mean, yes, listen to the people around you too. I'm not saying ignore those people, but listen also to people across lines of of your tradition. And, and in, in our circles, it's not denominational difference. That's going to matter. It's political difference. Yeah. Right. So, if, if we are Republicans, the fact that you're Pentecostal and I'm Baptist doesn't matter anymore. The, but so listening to you as a Baptist, if, I, if you're also a Republican, it's not a challenge for me. Right. But it's because political difference is so much more right. wide than right. denominational difference. And to go completely and, full circle, also pay attention to Orthodox Christians. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and yes, read something that's, more that's than Vladimir Lasky. Right? You know, my one that I've, I know by heart yeah. and uh, read someone else. Right. Sorry. I yeah. didn't mean to cut you off. I just thought no, that no, was. No. Well, I, I'm, you're, I, yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And so it's, it, some of it is about practice the hospitality of the Christmas story, right? Make some room in your life for people who, who need that space yeah. and, and pay attention, like pay attention to the text, pay attention to the witness of the church you know, go to, go to churches. I had a great conversation yesterday with, with a friend who talked about where he was working in a, in a Pentecostal church through college. And just at a point in his life, he was like, I was so hungry for something. And I realized what I was hungry for was something that only a liturgical church could give me. Amen. And he said, not because I really aspired to that kind of life. I didn't know anything about it. But right. our churches were talking about everything else. And I, what, I, what I ended up talking with him about was they were doing the basics. Yeah. Like liturgical churches were focused on, let's actually read the Christmas story out loud. Right? Yeah. Like, like, let's pray prayers that were shaped by Christians who weren't born in the last 20 years. Yeah. Let's, let's sing songs that were written 500 years ago. And that sense of groundedness and rootedness around seasons like Christmas are that Andrew Arndt, who's, a, who's another friend. I, I remember telling, hearing this story from him once he, he was, he grew up in Wisconsin, or at least he lived there when he's a young man. And one year he decided to go to midnight mass 
And I may not have all the details exactly right, so Andrew can correct me. But as I remember the story, like he was, you know, Pentecostal kid, grew up Pentecostal church and kind of went to midnight mass thinking there's not going to be anyone there. They're Catholics. Who's going to come to church? And it's going to be dead, right? Like it's, yeah. it's Catholics. And I can't remember what motivated him to go exactly if someone took him or what it was. But anyway, he ends up there and the place is like jammed, like standing room only. Yeah. And it's this like encounter with the holy for him that he did not at all expect, right? Mm -hmm. Like what was what he was brushing up against there, right? Is is the depth of a tradition that frankly our tradition just lacks. It just doesn't have it. Yeah. And yeah. with all all of the strengths that we have of you know, the spiritedness in which we preach or pray or sing, which I love. I mean, absolutely love all that. But when it comes to learning the faith, we have to say we failed is is to is way understate the fact. Yeah, we have failed abysmally to teach the faith, and we're paying we're paying the price for it, and we're going to keep paying the price for it. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I mean, I think I think that's right. I think that's why there's this kind of like late Gen X millennial move towards liturgical churches. I mean, we kind of see this thing that kind of keeps happening and I'm a product of it. Right. I think there's a lot of people who are a product of it. And um, I think we need to redefine what we define as a living church and a dead church, because we have this assumption, especially as Pentecostals, that a living church is vibrant. There's people like tons of people it's packed and there's loudness and there's raising of hands and there's clapping and shouting and all that versus deadness of contemplation, right? It's I think that's... Yeah, it's a bizarre thing. I mean, I, I don't want to be too glib about it. I don't want to be glib at all. I don't want to be too... Um, there is a legitimate point to be made about spiritedness, right? About right. about liveliness, like that we should say these things like we mean them. But a in a faith... That's defined by someone who dies <laughs> and a faith that's shaped by followers of his, all of whom die, many of whom die as martyrs. Right. It is absurd that we think death is the worst thing. Right. It's yeah, not yeah. the worst thing to be dead. And it's, it's much, much worse to have the form of life, but to be false to the spirit of Jesus than it is to be dead. It would be much better for our churches to be true to the gospel, but not feel it than to yeah. feel caught up in something that's not true to the gospel. Yeah. Oh, and for sure. That we don't, I mean, we haven't reckoned with that fact, right? We want spiritedness. We don't care what spirit it is. And there's something about Luther's idea of soul sleep that when you die, your soul just kind of goes to sleep. That sounds really wonderful for someone who's been busy for so long. That just, you know, rest. That's Absolutely. a really nice rest. rest. Now, hey, rest. we're gonna make a shift. Okay. Um, well, you and I, we're gonna we're gonna pause. Everyone hold on tight because what we're gonna kind of move from now is the commercialism of Christmas to the commercialism of our world. Uh, and to talk about the movie, don't look up and our responses, our thoughts, if you haven't seen it, it's on Netflix, but we'll be right back to, um, maybe give some insight, some, not gripes, some, some kind of word. I'll come up with a better word about don't look up here in a second. 
And we're back. Chris, thanks for staying with me and not being like, you know what? I'm done with this. I'm out. No, yeah. Having fun. Um, hey, so don't look up, right? If you haven't watched it, it's on Netflix. If you don't have a Netflix account, I'm sure you have a friend that has a friend that has the account access information that you can go grab. I don't even, I'm not even saying you should watch it. I just, I know that we both have had thoughts and when we were texting and just kind of going through it, it kind of hit me like, Hey, did you see this? And it just kind of happened. Right. We just started talking about it. And so maybe I want to kind of start on this one and then I'll let you kind of like follow up. But if you haven't seen it, right. Don't look up is this kind of like Netflix star studded movie that has this social critique about consumerism, commercialism, as it relates to an end of the world, apocalyptic matter, right? This asteroid's coming to earth. It's going to blow us all up. There is this kind of moment about, okay, let's blow it off course with some nukes. So we'll be okay. Versus, you know, the Facebook esque person who is like, well, no, there's lots of diamonds and minerals that I need. So let me just blow it into chunks. That'll be safe to hit the earth and I can have whatever I need. Right. That's a really bad summation of the movie. Again, you'll probably just need to go watch it, but really the whole kind of movie is a critique on our culture, particularly us in the West, our culture in consumerism, right? Mm -hmm. We will allow the world to end for the pursuit of more. Yes. Right. We'll, we'll allow whatever it is to happen to the earth or anything outside of us, even when it impacts us eventually for more Mm -hmm. and for better and for what, for whatever it can be. Now, when I'm I'm watching this movie, I I was watching it with Kristen and beyond the fact that I got about halfway through and I was like, I'm really kind of done with this, but now I've got to finish it to the end. Like it kind of got to a point where I'm like, all right, I'm kind of done with this movie, but let me just see how it ends. Um, What struck me as odd is there was this tone of the movie that particularly wanted to point the finger at everybody else. Right. So there's this tone of the movie that kind of goes, this is your fault. You're the ones who want more. You're the ones who allow these big companies to get away with this. You're the ones that like to be entertained versus being told the truth. You're the ones that would rather believe in not science than science. You're right. So there is a clear audience that this movie is kind of pointing the finger about. And if if we name that clear audience, and I don't know if you would agree, but I mean, I think that is pretty plain that it's kind of the ultra right wing conservative consumeristic world with with implications for other con- people, too, in terms of consumerism. Mm-hmm. Right. But there is this kind of clear pointing of the finger of this group of people. And it just strikes me that the very people who need to hear the message about, hey, we've got to stop using things as as it best suits us, we've got to start thinking about more global impact, more earth impact, more about how our world's doing about longevity of this planet. Like the world we're creating for our kids and our grandkids and our great grandkids. It uses the same vitriol finger pointing and kind of saying, this is all your fault. This is what you're leading us to that literally gets us nowhere. And then we kind of put our hands up and go, well, how come no one is changing their opinion? How come people still aren't being better for the earth? Look, we gave you this movie. We showed you, 
right? Mm-hmm. In this satirical format, what's going to happen if you stay down your path? And it doesn't do anybody any good. It, it hardens again a group that already believes that, right? We people talking about it. Uh, you're telling me I forgot the word now that I'm on my tangent, right? A uh, tribe, right? It's the, yeah. it, it tells the tribe that already believes this way yeah. you're doing right. And it points the finger at the other tribe and says, you're doing terrible. And it just in, in battles, those two tribes yet again. And yet these are the same people making this movie who are going to stand up at their Oscars. If they win something and say, we need oh, to be better to the earth. Yeah. <laughs> I hope it doesn't win either. I just mean like, you know what I mean? The same yeah. actors who would, who would stand up and make these claims about let's be better for the earth. Let's do this. Let's care about these things are the same people who use the same tactics that have kept us in this cyclical moment of going nowhere. There's my frustration. We might be saying slightly different things. I think we both dislike the movie, but I think for slightly different reasons. Yeah. And I'm not sure they're incompatible reasons, but I think they're slightly different reasons. I, because I, I think for me, it's not just that they're failing to communicate with their audience, because I, I do think there is time and place for artfully mocking a group of people <laughs> yeah. that, that there is a way to do that, that has its place. That's not grandstanding for your own crowd. Like right. I, I think it's possible to, to tell a story in such a way that you are confronting people with you're being really stupid, like, like really, really stupid, but not in a way that is, for the yucks of your own crowd. Right. So I, right. I don't think this movie does that at all. I think it is possible to do that though. Right. No, I, and I'm, I'm with you too. I think it is possible. I just don't think this one did yeah, it not even by close. any stretch. Not even right. close. And I think that this is, so it, my critique is that it's, it's more than just tone. It's, it's really poorly done in that at multiple levels. One is, all of the people, and I'm sure, at, I, I don't, obviously, I don't know the filmmakers. I don't know the screenwriters. I don't know what they were trying to do. I think the movie is really confused. I don't know that they were confused. Who knows how what the process was like, but I think it right. comes off as confused. Because even though I agree with you, there's this tone, this berating tone, right, of how could you people be so stupid? And it's pretty clear that you people means whoever watches Fox News and whoever right. voted for Trump. I mean, that... Right. That's what that means. Like, that's the group they have in mind. But the people on, quote unquote, their side are mostly terrible people, too. Right. So, like, right. Right. the Leonardo DiCaprio's character, Jennifer Lawrence's character, those people are, un- are unlikable. I mean, he's an adulterer who is pretty clearly in the show, pretty clearly right, but a terrible person or a pretty yeah. terrible person. And she's even more clearly right, but absolutely insufferable. Like, and it's clear that even people on their side, she's just like the equal opposite of Jonah Hill's character or Meryl Streep's character. So like there's no one or almost no one, no one of any weight in the story who is right and a good person too. (laughs) Like, and, and I think that that that's part of what's tragic about this the failure of the art of this movie is that there's no, you know, instead of trying to tell the truth, they just try to make the people who are right look bad too, as a way of being even handed. Right. So it's, a, it's yeah, like yeah. It, it, the effect is 
yeah, it's the Republicans, the white middle class Trump voting crowd. That's who's to blame for this. But we will at least be honest that the people who are on our side are terrible people, too. Like, yeah, that, yeah. that's not helpful. Like, that's not artful. And it's not illuminating. And it, it I'm sure that defenders of the movie would want to counter your critique by saying, oh, no, no, it's not us against them because we made these characters right. bad, too. But to me, that's part of the fault of the movie. Not, that, right. that's not It's not a defense. It's well, not to and- say, yeah. And I think I, I'm with you. I'm, I'm all in for relatable characters, right? Like all in for kind of like, let's be honest, but there has to be someone that we walk away with. In my opinion, in a movie like this, that's trying to make a social critique that we can hang our hat on and go, I want to be like that person, even amidst their flaws. Well, I mean, right? yeah, at least it should have a good reason not to give us that if it's not going to do it. It sh- there should be some reason in the story that compels them not to give that to us. In other words, I again think it's possible to tell a good story, yeah, in which there's no redeeming character, but you it has to make sense. There has to be it has to be true to itself in some way. And I do think there is one moment, unbelievably, there is a moment in this movie <laughs> that has some of that, even though it makes no sense. And that is the supper scene where he prays at the end. Um, the mm, yeah, Timothy Kelly. I think Calumet, however you say his name, Calumet. Yeah. Guy, the, oh, no, I think I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. He that dude, scene was a surprise, right? It's it, it. Well, it's a surprise because it doesn't make any sense in relation to anything right. else in the movie. Right. But I actually think it was a truthful moment in the film. Like what we actually need is to shut up, sit down at the table, give thanks to God and eat. Like, that's <laughs> yeah. true. Like that I, is where we are. Like I, the irony is they, they come up against that for just a moment, but it makes no sense in the flow. Like th- that, his character, like, and he, he says earlier, earlier on the film, right. That he, he was raised in church, but he, you know, he hates it, hates his parents or whatever. And then when the world starts to end, he got, gets in touch with that. Um, and I don't know. I'd like to know like where that character came from, like what, what is happening there? Because I feel like that, if there is a redeeming moment in the film, it's that one, right? It's that very moment, but then they immediately take it back. Right. So that happens, but then they immediately give you another ending, right? Where Mark Rylance's character, who's, you know, a spoof of Zuckerberg, the guy who invented the, had the plan, right. To to break apart the, anyway, he shows up like they, they, what is it? 2000 years later or something, or even longer. I don't know. It's like way, 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 way in the future. Meryl Streep and they, they survive. Did you see this scene? I don't think I did. I think I was okay, done. So so I just turned it off. Okay. Yeah. So there's an after credit scene. Oh, where okay. The people that got on that special shuttle, which were Mark Ryland's character, Meryl Streep's character, and so on, they survive. Hmm. And I think, it, I don't remember now, 2000 or 20,000 years in the future, they come off into the new earth that has been purged, you know, on the other side of the flood, they survive and then they get killed <laughs> like, I mean, <laughs> by the dinosaurs. I might've liked the movie then if I saw that. But the, I think that's another, to me, it's another example of how they didn't even realize when they did come up against something true, they didn't realize it. Right. So they, yeah. they show you something that's close to true. Yeah. What we need to do is be grateful, say our prayers, share meals together and shut up. And the, and then immediately they take it back with, and, and I think the reason they take it back is that 
this movie is guilty of every single sin it tries to deny or tries to decry like right. everything they're trying to blame, you know, so the, well, the, that, that was my point, right? Like that's the very, like they're using the same tactics as right. what they're trying to point against. Absolutely. And every, every single one of them, right? Like the, the Kate Blanchett and Tyler Perry, Perry characters, right. Who have the, yeah. the, the show where they're just trying to make everything funny and maybe right. these things aren't funny. That's what that movie is. Like, that movie is a performance of the very same thing that Tyler Perry and right. Kate Blanchett's characters were doing inside the show. It's, it's unbelievable that they could get by with that. Like that their conscience would let them do that. Right. Like that they could yeah. make a movie that's guilty of the very thing they're trying to say is to blame for everything that's wrong with us. Right, and that's right. not that's not clever. I saw I saw some critic try to argue that that's clever, but it isn't clever. Like that's not no. clever at all. Like it's no, it, absurd. In fact, it's it's grading, right? Like it's once you kind of realize it, it, it is grading. Absolutely. It just grates on you to kind of go it, again. It, it's the it's anytime we come across, and and I'm going to use this, and I actually have a, a problem with this via different than what the Fox's news is of the world. I never even I don't watch that, but like what they did with, with um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the Met Gala. Okay. Right. Yeah. Her dress. What did it say? I can't remember something about the poor. Yeah. Um, you know, something I, I can't even remember now. I don't, because I, again, I it, was, it. I don't remember. It was yeah, unmagnificent, unmagnificent and grading. And it was because it was that because she tried to use the very platform of the rich to say something to the rich while enjoying the life of the rich and stupidly. Right. And, so it's, right. <laughs> like it's Very stupid things, right. It's, it's a, I think it's perfectly. So there's an old, there was a show on HBO. It wasn't a great show, although the concept was incredible called John from Cincinnati. And the premise of the show is from David Milch, the guy who made NYPD blue. So the premise of the show is that, there was going to be another 9-11 and that in the aftermath of the second 9-11, all, all people who were thought to be Muslim in any way were going to be killed all around the mm. world. And that in order to event, to kind of keep that from happening, God sent an angel to the surfing beaches in California to get together a band of disciples to change the spirit of the moment, right? To change the narrative so that this event wouldn't happen or if it did happen, it wouldn't lead to mass slaughter of, right. You know, people who are Muslim. Is this, I'm, I'm guessing this is still on HBO, but just canceled. It was canceled uh, after one season. And if you watch 20 minutes of it, you'll know why it was canceled. Nobody, <laughs> um, I, I think it's genius, but it's genius in a way that nobody was going to track. Like, right, I, think, right. I, I mean, I think it was way, way, way ahead of its time and out of, took people out of their depths. So, I mean, I, I think as a, as a work of art, it's absolutely worthwhile, but it, it it wasn't going to have any kind of, it's not surprising it was canceled, but here's, here's the point in that agenda, this angel does start to work with a Luke Perry plays a character who is really tech savvy and kind of uh, has a publicist's eye and ear and he works for a surfing company or related to the surfing industry. 
And there's this kind of recognition that he's the one who's going to get the message out. Right. Like, yeah. but we have to let, he has to have a conversion to the truth of what's, of what's happening. So I do think there's a way in which it's possible to make a movie that's critical of the movie industry. It's possible to engage in the games of the rich in order to critique the rich, just like I think it's possible yeah. for, for in biblical terms, it's possible for a court prophet to be a true prophet. Right. But in order to do that, it requires you, you can't be stupid. <laughs> like, right. like you can't be stupid and you can't play games. Right. You have to know what you're doing. You have to be genuinely insightful, genuinely prophetic. And this movie or, you know, Cortez's dress or what, like that's, that's not, there's, that's just as stupid as the stuff they're critiquing. If right. Not stupider. right. And that's my problem with it. And it takes a kind of moral integrity. Absolutely. That is we often in, in character that is often missing in the very people who want to try and do that. Absolutely. Well, right. they're mocking. I mean, that's part of what's grading about don't look up is that the, and I understand why they did it. Right. Cause they, they, they don't, want to leave the impression this is the conflictedness on the quote unquote progressive side of American politics right now. I say quote unquote, because I don't think we even know what those terms mean. Don't even get me started about American (laughs) politics, but what is perceived as progressive, right? Right. Even by people who identify those terms, the, there's a way in which there's so disrespectful about morality and about faith that, or they've so personalized it that they have no way of taking it seriously. And this is, this is why I think such a surprise that you get that prayer at the end of don't look up because it's, it's, it's like an admission against themselves in spite of themselves that, you know, what really the only thing to do in the face of all this is to be grateful, to say that you're, you think, you know, it, it, that that moment of recognition is is what's missing. And so much of what happens on, quote unquote, progressive side, including what passes for like progressive Christianity. It's so critical of morality and faith that it it loses touch with. Well, listen, you can't none of this makes any sense if you can't strike that posture of gratitude. Right. And if if prayer becomes impossible for you, then you're talking nonsense when you talk about right and wrong. Right. Or, or if you're not, you're going to have to do a lot of work to explain how you're not. Right. And yeah. so it's it's it, if I can put it like this, that it's grading when people are preachy, but they they're not living lives that are rooted in prayer. Hmm. And yeah. that's it's eating us up on every side. Like and that, and, and let's let's define real quick that living a life of prayer, because I, I, I think a lot of people, they hear that and go, well, they just pray every day. They get up at six and they pray for an hour. Right. Because that's not what you're saying. I don't no, think no, no, at no, least. No. Right. Maybe kind of clarify for some people what it means to live a life of prayer. So we understand. Yeah. What for me, prayer, the integrity of prayer is, are you thankful? And what are you thankful for? Right. Do you intercede? Like, are you pray? Who are you praying for? Right. So what are you thankful for? Who are you praying for? And is that prayer rooted in a sense of your own helplessness, right? A sense of your own, you cannot and should not try to fix what's wrong in the world. That like prayer is about surrender and openness to God, speaking up on the behalf of those who, who don't have 
people speaking up for them or people who are speaking against them. You know, so, so prayer looks like the prayers of the prophets and the apostles, the prayers of Jesus. So, yeah, I don't mean telling God the things you want done. Right. Right. <laughs> so, at least not only that. Yeah, I think overall, I mean, and, and I don't want to make light of it either, because I, I think scientifically our, our our world is in trouble. Right. Like we're not taking oh, good care of it. We, we absolutely. I think it's hard not to see that we can talk all about at some point, maybe truthfulness and facts, right. And a theological perspective, right. And and how we have to handle that. That's Mm -hmm. probably something we should do, especially in the light of the past couple of years. Right. Um, But we have to like, we have to recognize how we talk about how the earth is suffering Mm -hmm. is just as important as fixing it because well, how we, and, how we yeah. talk about it is, is going to either bring people along the side of us, how it's going to engage people with us or how it's going to push people off into those camps. Right. But I think part of what we have to do is how, one of the reasons we're in this place specifically with the earth is we have lost touch with nature and mm-hmm. therefore we've lost touch with grace. I mean, Thomas Merton, he's, you know, far from the only person to observe this, but I just right. happened to be reading it this week, which he talks about ways in which I may have it right here. I can just read it, but he talks about ways in which we, he, he says pagans knew the reality of nature and people of faith know the reality of grace, but modern folks know neither nature nor grace. Hmm. They only know artificiality. They know the world they've constructed for themselves. Hmm. Yeah. And again, he's not the first person to say it, but he says it particularly well, I think. Yeah. And I, I absolutely think that's what we're dealing with. Like we live yeah. in a simulated world, a world of our projections and a world of our fantasies. And we are out of touch with nature and we're out of touch with grace. And what's going to have to bring us back is this sense of limitation. And I, I do think that, Even terrible films now can't keep from admitting that in spite of themselves, right? So, like, I think that's what's happening in that moment, in that that dinner. Like, in spite of themselves, even though nothing in the story suggests this is where these characters would end up, they do end up there at a table saying, we can't do anything about what's about to happen, but we can be grateful and we can share a meal, right? That's nature and grace meeting, Right. And they're mm-hmm. and it's meeting in their recognized helplessness. I, I just preached about this yesterday that this this is part of what it means to be a child, that the, the child likeness we're called to is to recognize we are at the mercy of forces we do not control. We can't even name them, much less. control. Yeah. And that's what we're meant to be. Right? Like we're right to be children in that sense. Right. We're, we're meant to have that kind of powerlessness, that kind of need. And. So much of modern life is an attempt to overcome that, to try through technology or medicine or religion or whatever, to find ways of getting past our helplessness. Yeah. There's no getting past it. Right. And, and that I, to me, the, one other movie I want to mention that the Wonder Woman movie that came out, mm-hmm. I think it was the, the 1984 one. Yeah. The 1984, which I, I did not think was a good movie, but. I think it admitted this same truth. Remember the, the premise of that is the, um, what's his no. character's name? Oh gosh. 
I think of him as the Mandalorian. I can't think of the actual actor's name. Um, the Mandalorian plays this. <laughs> this, this big That's a weird man. crossover. No one ever knew they wanted, but now <laughs> exactly. we need. To. I don't know why I can't think of the guy's name. But I can't. I don't. The, anyway, the, the the premise of the story is that he he can give people whatever they wish for, but to do that, he takes their life from them. Right. So you right. can have anything you want, but you lose your humanity in the process. Right. That's the premise of the story. And wonder woman, she wants her lover back, right? The man who, who got Chris Pine's character, who, who died, she wants him back again and she gets him, but she starts to lose her own humanity. Right. So to speak. And at the end of the movie, she has to realize that the only way forward, the only future we have is through renunciation. Denying yeah. our needs or denying our wants, uh, denying what we think we need. And like, that's, that's the truth, right? Like deny yourself, go the extra mile, turn the other cheek, be thankful, yeah. offer the sacrifice of praise. I mean, that's what's true. And that's what it means to be a human being. And I think we are start that's starting to dawn on us, even our terrible movies are having to admit that, <laughs> but I don't, I don't know that our churches are admitting that. No. Right? And the, this to bring it full circle yet again, that's, that's what Christmas is about, right? Yeah. It's about ad- admitting I didn't make this world. I can't fix this world. And the only way I'm going to be able to fulfill my responsibilities in this world is to own my limits, right? To own that. I am not anybody's savior, not, especially not my own. And right. I, ironically, if we would live like that, we wouldn't be damaging the earth. And, and to be clear, just to be clear, kind of in following up on that, it doesn't mean that we don't do anything when we accept the limitations. It doesn't mean that we just sit at the table and do nothing. Eventually we do get up from the table and go and engage. Right. But it is in that recognition that ultimately, ultimately, we are out of control. Right. right? It's exactly. It, we can fulfill our actual responsibilities only when we stop trying to fix things that aren't ours to fix. Yeah. Right. So I absolutely can love my neighbor, but I cannot love my neighbor as long as I'm trying to control the environment in which my neighbor lives. Right. So yeah. this, this is why so much of the culture war stuff is not only misguided because you're going to lose. It's misguided because even if you won, you wouldn't have done anything. Right. Exactly. You're doing more harm than good in winning. No matter what, if you win or lose, you gain nothing because you cannot love your neighbor by controlling the politics in which your neighbor's life lives. Now, if you love your neighbor, you have to care about politics because you love your neighbor and you have to be concerned about the laws that impinge on your neighbor and the policies that shape the life of your neighbor. But those things are entirely different from yes, like loving your neighbor and being concerned about law. And the enforcement of law, because you love your neighbor, is one thing. Trying to get somebody elected because you want certain laws to be the law, so your neighbor has to conform to your vision of life, is an entirely different thing. Terrible. We don't know. We've lost the plot in terms of what that difference is, I think. Right. And that's a whole, I mean, that's a whole other topic, how the culture wars have destroyed our, our, our Christianity. Absolutely. It really has absolutely destroyed it. Um, I'm not saying it's completely gone, but it's really messed us up in the way that we engage with the world. And it's created the foundation for many American Christians for how they, how they assume what that means for the world. I I do want to say, you know, as we kind of close out again, that, 
this conversation, so many of our conversations have really kind of hinged on, you know, some summation of a lot of these, we often find ourselves using the, the very tactics that are going to end up harming what we're trying to accomplish, right? Because we think that's the right way. And I think one of the kind of big visions for, for Christianity is that prophetic vision of how do we do this differently than the way that we've been told it has to be done in order to accomplish what needs to be accomplished. And, but the other thing I want to say, and, and this is a future conversation because it's actually one that I'm, I'm sure we both have thoughts on, but I would love to maybe even give us our own challenge that by the end of this season to do a conversation about a theology, a, a theology of technology, especially mm. as it relates to things like, I mean, I hate the name, but it's what it is. It's what, we already mentioned Zuckerberg once today, but it's trying to think about within the world, this metaverse reality, this, this constant kind of moving us into a different reality or a blended reality of technology and in our mm -hmm. own life. And you talk about nature and grace. I mean, the diminishing of nature all the time for something other than natural. And, and what is a Christian response? How do we kind of think about this in healthy ways? Because this is not a train that we're stopping. Right. Like we're not stopping the progression of technology, nor do I think we should. But how we approach it has been woefully lacking within our own kind of Christian theology and therefore our ecclesiology. Right. How do we talk about theology? And so I think that's just a charge for us. And I think it's yeah. one that maybe I hope it would be interesting to listeners. I will say if you've made it this far on Chris and I's ramblings of many things uh, today, I would ask that you, and, and I know I hate this everyone, but whatever, we're just doing it to subscribe and rate and, and uh, review whatever platform you're on to kind of give us a thumbs up, a five star a review. It does help people who are interested in these topics uh, find us and get to know more about kind of the conversations that we're having and the guests that we're bringing on. It'd be very helpful to Chris and I, and we're going to keep trying to engage in conversations that it's not just commercialism, which you want to hear, but discussing topics that are relevant, of course, to uh, the church and our world today. Uh, all of that being said, I do want to do this one just because I want to do it. Because uh, I'm interested, I want to hear. Oh, I need to talk about. It. I taught a class. I don't know if you know I've discussed this, but when I was at the seminary in Tennessee, I taught a class, a doctor of ministry class, on theology of technology. Mm -hmm. And man, the students hated it so much. <laughs> like they hated it so much because it it does touch a nerve um, that I think needs to be. Needs to yeah. Be so yeah, let's definitely circle back. And on. it's going to be a weird one. It's going to be metaphysics and it's going to be some odd stuff. I know. I mean, we have to go there. Right. Um, Chris, thanks for having this conversation. Yeah. Merry I think Christmas. it's been, been fun. Merry Orthodox Christmas to you. Uh, I don't know if that's, I mean, I'm sure that's not the right way to say it and they would probably not like it, but Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry one Christmas. And all. Absolutely. To very, everyone, very Dickens. Of me. We're very we're Christmas. still in this season. It's still okay to tell people Merry Christmas until Epiphany. Yeah, absolutely. You so, got a couple days left, so. Um, my friend, we'll chat soon, and with everyone else, we'll be back.